0: That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda
1: just write itself?
2: Words appear, making this unexplainable case...
1: Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds.
0: Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now.
3: Canva.com, designed for work. The way you become a um, autocrat or a dictator is you get everybody into pack mode, and you get them all afraid that they'll end up at the disadvantaged slot, that they'll be the one who's humiliated and the one who the pack turns on, and then everybody has to get in line.
2: Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein on the Box Media Podcast Network. <laughs> when I was on leave, I spent most of the time, really almost all of the time, on a social media blackout. I, I sent out a few tweets to promote things I needed to, to promote for my work, but I-, I read no Twitter, I read no Facebook, and it was easy to do because I wasn't trying to stay on top of the news. For the first time in 15 years, I was actually trying to let myself fall behind the news so I could think about other things. And you know what? It worked. It felt great. It opened up mental space that I had not even known I had lost. I felt like I learned more and learned it faster in those three months than I have in years. But I'm back. And and being back means returning to the new cycle, trying to figure out what's going on. And it is amazing how overwhelmed and distracted I feel. The experience of reopening to all this is like letting someone follow me around and shout into my ear whenever they want. And the thing is, some of the things they shout, they're important. Some of them are funny, some of them are insightful, but most of them aren't and a lot of it is just shouting and I'm trying to think about something else and all of a sudden my concentration is completely broken and now I'm hearing other people shout. But look, I want to do some shouting too and it's part of my job to do some shouting, I think. So it hardly seems fair to not let myself be shouted back at. But I don't know. I'm in a place of uncertainty on this. I'm not sure exactly what is the relationship I want with social media right now. And so I called John Linier. John Lanier is. I, I think one of the smartest, most important critical thinkers on technology. He's a, a genuine humanist who helped create the virtual reality industry, who works at Microsoft. Now, he was there at the launch of many of the technologies we use today, and he really is not sure they're doing so much good. He's one of my absolute favorite people to talk to on this stuff, not, not because I always agree with him, but because even when I don't, uh, I find myself thinking about his arguments for weeks afterwards. He's one of these people who, if he's right about 30 percent of it, it's a very 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 important 30%. He's got a new book out, and it's called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. It's a very declarative title. And so I asked him back on the show, we had an amazing conversation a couple months back, to make the case that I should, in fact, delete all of my social media accounts right now, that I should follow his advice. Did I end up convinced? Are are my social media accounts gone? No, they're not gone. I'm I'm not entirely convinced. But he's left me asking a question. I think all of us should ask, one that's not just about distraction or productivity or time well-spent or even happiness. The question that this podcast left me with and that I'd like you thinking about as you listen to it is is, can I, can one, be really engaged on social media, at least the political side of social media, and be actually the kind of person I want to be in the world? Can social media be consistent with being a better version of myself? And if not, why not? Why not? If not, is that a place we really all should be? So here's
3: Jaron Lanier. Jaron Lanier, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to be back. It feels like I'm living in this podcast now. <laughs> that, that, that's how we like it to
2: be. That's how we like it to feel. So let me, let me begin here. If you look back in the history of technology, the adoption of every big new advance, it comes with this chorus of people claiming it's a downfall of civilization, it's making all the kids rude, everything's too fast— and then a couple decades go by and we look back on those people as bloodites, as hysterical, as wrong. So tell me why those of us warning about the ills of social media now won't look that way in 10 or 20 years.
3: Oh, look, I totally want to look that way in 10 or 20 years. Are you kidding? That's my goal. <laughs> I, I don't know. Seriously. Uh, so the thing is, uh, I believe that that pattern that you described is real and um I'll give you the worst example, which was uh, when the Nazis came to power, this they is were the worst example lever- yeah well, let's hope it remains the worst example. Um, when the Nazis came to power they were able to leverage what at that time were novel and fresh and scary media to their advantage and specifically uh, uh, cinema and they were and radio and they were, uh, even um, some of the earliest experimenters with television broadcast, right? And so they were able to create powerful propaganda that threw people off balance because people had not become familiar, people had not built up defenses, and the, the novelty amplified the power of the propaganda. And I I think it's hard to imagine the Nazi regime— having, I just can't imagine that they would have attained the level of evil that they did without that assist, which brought in so much of the population. And so I think that that's a, a, not a perfect, but something of a rhyming metaphor to what's going on now, where we have this, this world of new media forms that are being used by bad actors to their advantage. And I dearly hope that in the future, we'll look back on it and we'll recognize that that was in part driven by the novelty factor and the way that people really hadn't developed defenses yet. Uh, That's exactly what I, that's totally what I want to be true.
2: Well, I have to admit, I thought we weren't going to get to the Nazis till at least 30 minutes in. So I I definitely should have taken the under. Yeah, (laughs)
3: But but,
2: let me me offer a counter theory on this. Okay. um, Because I wonder about this sometimes. So Another way of thinking about the ways in which every new big technological advance gets associated with the most terrible things happening in the age is that if you look back in human history, terrible things are always happening. Awful wars, cruelty to our fellow man. I mean there is no dearth of moments of atrocity over our past as a species. But when they happen, like everything else going on in society, they end up using whatever the technologies are that are around at the time. And for a lot of reasons related to how humans think and how the media works and all kinds of other things, we end up really focusing – if something new and bad is happening, we end up focusing on the new part of it. I mean I I think about this sometimes when I look at Facebook and fake news and Donald Trump where I'm not at all convinced – that Cambridge Analytica is what led to Donald Trump or fake news. I actually think the real news was much more of a problem um, during the election and much more powerful. But it's the newer part and you know, Russian trolling and all, all these things that feel, feel different. We have an attraction to them and they're less defended than the things that have been around for a long time. And so I sometimes wonder whether we don't have a consistent structural tendency to overweight the contribution that new technologies make to new things happening that are bad. Um, whereas, you know, we look back, there are always bad things happening and, and they take advantage of whatever's around at the time.
3: Huh. Okay. So here's my take on this. You're probably familiar with the work of people like Steven Pinker who mm-hmm. have documented that in a multitude of ways, things have gotten better as history has progressed. Indeed,
2: right? a, past, a past guest on the Ezra Klein Show.
3: Okay, wonderful. And, um, and I think that the pattern he detects is real. I, I think he's correct. So, but let's dig a little deeper into that. The question is why have things gotten better? And to my mind, there are two forces that have made things become better over time. One is that advances in technology has have given us new options, and among those options is making things better. However, there have always been other options too. So sometimes things get markedly worse when a new technology comes along for a while. So then the other force that has to be tied to technology is technology criticism. <laughs> there have to be people who are saying this is bullshit. (laughs) We can do better with this. The internet can be better than this. And so to me, um, participating in criticizing the new technology is precisely a necessary component of making that new technology function for the good. Uh, it is the critics who created that, uh, rise in um, in benefits for mankind in addition to the scientists and technologists. So I'm not so concerned as to whether I or anybody else might be a little too alarmist or not alarmist enough because it's impossible to have enough perspective to calibrate that. What I do know is that scientists and technologists have an, an absolute responsibility to also be critics to try to make whatever it is we do as good as possible. And so that's what I'm doing. And I will be thrilled, delighted if I live long enough to hear somebody make an excellent assessment that I was overly alarmist in the past. I mean, I, that would be thrilling to me. That's, that's that's my fondest hope.
2: All right. So this is going to be an exciting day for you. Um, you don't know this, but you are catching me at the precise moment of inflection. Um, we we got to uh-huh. spend some time together while I was out uh, in California on book leave and I think I probably mentioned to you that I was completely off social media for, for almost all of that. There are a couple of moments where I tweeted something out but never even looked at Twitter. I actually didn't even when I did that look at Twitter. So I was off Facebook. I was off Twitter. Um, I was just off. I was off the grid. And now I am back in Washington, D.C. and everything is hot. And Anthony Kennedy retired, <laughs> and the news cycle is crazy. Yeah. And I am, you know, tweeting things out from Vox, and so I'm I'm testing out again whether how it feels to be back in 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 social media, how it feels to be reengaging with some of these devices. So, convince me, like right here, um, in this moment where I am I am weakened and I'm not sure what I should be doing and what I should be adding back in, that the correct answer is full abstention. Full pulling
3: back <laughs> as opposed to just
2: using it for a couple little things or using it to promote, you know, as opposed to the lure, which maybe is a, maybe is a, a, a fool, an effort of me fooling myself that, oh, I can, I can just diet, right? I can, I can go back in and just, you know, keep it um, master to my, um, you know, master it myself rather than letting it be my master.
3: Right. Well, you know, um, I repeat Maybe to the point of annoyance in in the Ten Arguments book, the very plain fact that I don't know enough about anybody else's life, nor would I even have a right to have an opinion uh, if I did know enough to, to, to tell anybody else what to do. And uh, the way I see it, there's a statistical distribution of people's experiences with social media where some people benefit from it enough that they should hold on to it. Other people really should experiment so they can at least find out if they're genuinely benefiting or not. They have a maybe a duty to abstain for a while just for self-knowledge. And there are others who clearly have a problem and should get off. Um, and I mean, I, I, I really don't live my life hoping to tell you what to do. And I feel like that is almost a strange thing to say, because it feels like an age where everybody is telling everybody else what to do it feels like the whole society has ideas about what the rest of society should do. And my goal is a little more modest than that. I mean, like what I want is just to create some space, even if it's a small minority space where there are people who aren't part of the mind manipulation machinery of social media, just so that we can have some perspective so that the society includes conversations that aren't routed through that space, which I think is deleterious. So I think having you in that space of the people who aren't trapped could be amazing. And uh, here's a, a metaphor I'll make. There have been a couple of times in uh, recent decades when mass addictions were causing a damage to society and people got together to address them in various ways and then were successful. One example is uh, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers was able to curtail uh, deaths from drunk driving, and you know alcohol is addictive. It's at least in the same territory. And another one is uh, nicotine, cigarettes. I mean, we've we've seen the marginalization of public cigarette smoking, and that's huge. That saved countless lives and made the world better. And that's another highly addictive product. So we know this can happen, but in each case. What was critical is there had to be some people who weren't addicted. There had to be some people who were outside of that world who could provide perspective and say, there is life outside of cigarette addiction. There is life outside of alcohol. And we need to create that space. So what I would ask you is to consider being a member of that space to provide the society with that perspective so that in the future we can look back and say, it's so wonderful that we were able to have that broader conversation that allowed us to improve society.
2: I think a lot of people hear these comparisons to cigarettes or alcohol and they say cigarettes are filled with addictive chemicals. Alcohol is an addictive substance. That making the analogy to something I just like using, even if it is filled with bright colors and little metrics and gamification, that that's taken a jump we shouldn't take. That it trivializes these other addictions and that it is getting – it is pathologizing something that's just
3: entertainment. The closer metaphor is gambling addiction, which is also purely behavioral without chemicals. I mean, it is with chemicals because your brain makes the chemicals in response to the behavioral stimulus, So, but it's, it's without externally administered chemicals. So uh, that's a closer metaphor. And we have some of the founders of these companies like Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, Stating that they deliberately use the same addictive techniques that are applied to to uh, gambling sites. Uh, so, I I mean, this gets back to this issue of, of how important it is to have a space outside of the addictive sphere. If you get a bunch of people who are really into their cigarettes and alcohol together, they'll typically say something similar. They'll say, well, this is unfair. This is just something I like. I'm It, it doesn't control me. I control it. They'll say all the same things. And you really need to have that perspective from on, outside to... To, to gauge those claims, maybe they're right. Even, but but when you're inside the sphere, you don't have the position to be able to to talk about it. You, you don't have the perspective. So, even if I'm wrong, it's still essential to have the space outside, and it's still essential for you to join us in that space.
2: So, you write something in the book about the gambling metaphor that I thought was really interesting. You say that a gambler is addicted not to winning exactly but to the process in which losing is more likely. A junkie is addicted not just to the high, but to the vertiginous difference between the highs and the lows. You, you say that people are addicted to the suffering, actually. They, they think they're addicted to the good part, but they're actually addicted, at least in part, to the, the contrast between the victory and the suffering. What is the suffering we are addicted to in social media? Uh,
3: the suffering is... Um feeling to be at a social disadvantage, where you're either disregarded or just dissed in some way, disrespected, to use the current terminology, where you might be worried about abuse or humiliation, and so you constrain yourself, where you're the one who isn't viral when you wished you were, where you're the one who... Uh, feel so worried about being bullied that you join the bullies in order to torment someone else, even if it's only in a slight way, Um, when you're the one who feels desperate to constantly be pinging the system out of a concern that you'll cease to exist if you don't do it. There's a very particular kind of uh, grandiosity and insecurity and uh, paranoia that is observable in many kinds of addicts. There are names for this as applied to social media. The poor little snowflake persona is, is an example of that. But it's exactly the same thing we see in Trump when he tweets. It's, it's, this, it's this strange um, insecurity combined with self-aggrandizement, combined with um, a kind of uh, aggression that is barely masking a sort of a fear and it's a it's it's a very particular personality type and any of us who have known addicts of substances or gambling or other things uh will find that personality effect familiar one of when i was reading
2: the book the argument of all of them that resonated the most strongly for me was the idea that social media amplifies the asshole in people
3: yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> i I'm, I both am on it when I – in seeing other people and seeing myself and I think about the person that I am in my life or when I talk to someone or when I'm on the podcast doing an interview and I think that person is a better person. He's a less dogmatic, less snarky, kind of less like going for the jab, um, less pack-oriented to, to use another of the metaphors you say. Person than the person I am in a lot of social media contexts. And I keep thinking that I should, with enough mindfulness and self-control, be able to be a good version of myself in those spaces. And that if I could, then it would be good, because what we want is people there being good versions of themselves, right? You don't want to abandon the conversation to, to its worst elements. And yet, I don't know. I I don't think I'm a terrible version of myself. I think I try hard enough not to be that. But But it does feel to me like it does not – I don't know people, many people who I think are a better version of themselves on Twitter than they are in other parts of their lives. And I'd like to hear you talk more about your theory for why that is. Why is it that these spaces pull out a worse version of the many versions of ourselves that we could be?
3: Yeah, I would like to talk about that. You said something important there, which is you're not sure if you know anybody who's a better version of themselves on Twitter. And I should say this is all sort of statistical tendencies. So I don't know anybody like that either, but there should be people like that. I mean, there are probably a few out there. There should be some kind of like tail of the curve. I'd love to know those people. Actually, It'd be interesting to identify them, but anyway, um, as to my theory about what's going on here, <laughs> there, there are a few different ones. But yeah, can one... I can I actually say one thing on that before we jump to the theory? Yeah, because you just made me realize
2: something that I should probably be more precise in my language. Uh-huh. I bet there are a lot of people who, if you look at the things they focus on on Twitter compared to their normal life, they're actually maybe focusing on more important issues. You know, in their normal life, they don't think that much about, say, healthcare for the poor. But on Twitter, they, they they do a lot of retweeting about it. It's more interpersonally. I, I, I'm i not sure. I think probably a lot of people are drawn to engaging in topics that are positive to engage in on Twitter. I just don't know that the way they treat each other, the way they sound, the way they talk – and I should say I, right? Me. Uh, this is true for me. Um, I, that's the part of me that I feel gets worse. It's, my, it's a part of me that is relational to other human beings. I mean, compared to like what I'm thinking about in my normal life where it's like dogs and what am I going to have for dinner? Maybe it's better that I'm just tweeting politics all day. <laughs> but I do feel like I'm, I'm being a, ni- a nicer person when I do it. I don't know if that, that distinction draws up anything for you, but I thought I would make it.
3: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Um, and uh, uh, listeners should know that uh, you saw an early version of the manuscript that was overly... Uh, cat-centric to the expense of dog lovers and I attempted to make some corrections uh, because of how you reacted to that, which I, I hope were of some I, I
2: appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad to have to have made my small my small uh, push on behalf of dog kind.
3: Yeah, I was just spending some time with a small dog and a cat together where they mimicked each other's behaviors, and for a while they'd both act like cats, and then they'd both act like dogs, and it was really charming. (laughs) Anyway, um, the theory goes like this. Uh, There's some species out there in the world that are strictly social, like, say, most ants, and there are some that are more strictly solitary, like a lot of cephalopods, Um, but there are some species that can switch and sometimes be solitary and sometimes be social. And in our popular imagination, a very uh, frequent one that comes up is the, the wolf. So we think of wolf packs and we think of the lone wolf. And what I observe is that the mentality that you have to bring to bear is very different if you're a lone wolf than if you're a member of a pack. If you're a lone wolf, Your core concern is the real world because you have to survive in it. You become a naturalist. You become a scientist or an artist, if you like. You have to pay attention to the weather and the food and predator and prey and uh, light and dark and heat and cold and uh, uh, sidelines and (laughs) shelter and all kinds of things, uh, terrain. So it's all about the natural world. Uh, when you're a member of a pack, however, your Im- most immediate concern, the thing that overwhelms everything, is politics. You have to be concerned about your competitive fellows. You have to be concerned about your relationships to people above you in the hierarchy and below you. And then, of course, you unite with your fellows in opposition to other packs, and you, you, you become um, soccer fans <laughs> united as one. And so uh, what I think happens with people is there's a deep switch inside us that switches our mode of perception from one to the other. And uh, the lone wolf mode of perception is really appropriate in some cases and really inappropriate in others. And the uh, pack switch, the pack mode of perception is uh, really appropriate in some and inappropriate in others. If you're in a military unit, of course, you have to be in the pack switch because teamwork is everything. If you're a citizen and you have to consider who to vote for, it's essential that you be in the lone wolf setting or else politics just turns into uh, nonsense. It just turns into identity politics. Um, if you're a shopper in a marketplace, you have to be in the lone wolf setting or else the market turns to nonsense. It just turns into fads and uh, tulip crazes and whatever. Uh, you have to be able to provide your own perspective, your own intelligence to be merged into the larger system. And if you lose that value by pre-merging with other people, then the system itself becomes broken. And so I think what happens online is... Is When people are put into a situation where there is no natural world that matters, where there's nothing of consequence, they're not earning money, there's, their, their only available benefit is uh, from mind games or social games, naturally they're thrown into the pack switch because that's all there is. But then when you're in the pack switch, but there's no clear pack, you end up in these constant weird struggles. You're in this world of eternally damned hopeless politics with everybody around you all the time. Uh, And so I think that's why people become assholes. And there's a little bit of evidence to support this, which is when you have online gathering situations where there is something at stake that's real, Everybody doesn't become an angel, but the asshole factor does go down. Um, I think there's less assholedom on LinkedIn, for instance, where people are worried about their careers and they have something actually, they have some real stake in the situation. And uh, they become assholes to a greater extent the less real stake they have in anything outside of the politics. So So that's the theory. One of
2: the things that that makes me think about, I've been working on this book about identity and politics and, and the way human beings act when different kinds of identities are called forward. And it, it makes me wonder how much some of the behavior we see on social media, both for better and for worse, by the way, is about followership dynamics, both who you follow and who follows you, which is to say that, you know, so I just said earlier that I think the issues here are relational. It's about it's about how I interact with other people, um, or at least how I portray the people I'm not interacting with, may, maybe is another way of putting that. And... One of the the theories I have about it is that you know when you're on Twitter and you have followed a bunch of people and have a bunch of followers who are members of certain groups that you're part of. Maybe it's a political group, maybe it's a knitting group, maybe it's a racial group, maybe it's about an issue you care about, maybe that you really love K-pop. Right? There's all kinds of things that might begin to to, to pull you in a in a certain direction. And then every time you log on, it's people from that group recalling that identity of yours, right? You, you see things that are constantly pinging on that identity, right? If you're a liberal, you, see, you constantly see news and commentary saying, hey, remember, you're a liberal, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and these conservatives are doing terrible things all of the time. And so you're constantly being reminded to act as a member of which, whichever groups you are, you have opted into, you're seeing the worst versions of other groups retweeted, right? It's not that you never see anybody from the other side. What you see is people, the worst of people from the other side, and that the the, the question really is about the boundaries of of packs and so forth, right? When you're, you know, I find as I sort of travel around just in my life. When I am in a group that has different dimensions to it, right that is brought together for a different purpose, maybe I'm in a room full of people who don't all agree, but they're all there because they're interested in healthcare policy. We interact differently than if another part of identity was was being maybe liberal and conservative were're just being pulled forward. And you know I, I wonder I wonder if there isn't some answers in that because I do think this is where I have some discomfort with your thesis. I do think that there are places where there's value here. I think that um – A lot of smaller groups uh, or traditionally marginalized groups have been able to be heard on social media and have been able to influence conversations on social media in ways that that were very difficult beforehand. I think things like Black Lives Matter um, would not have taken – had a lot of trouble taking off beforehand um, in in the way they have now when people could see, hey, this actually – people enough people care about this that it got onto the front page very fast of a lot of newspapers where I think it would have had to take a lot more time and build a lot more movement otherwise. So it feels to me like having those intense groups and so others can see the intensity of feeling in a group, it can have positive effects. But on the other hand, it, by virtue of having very intense groups, it, it, it calls forward very intense group behavior. And I guess my question to you is, I don't know if there's a way to strike a middle ground between the bad of that and 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 what can, in my view, be the, real, the very real good of it.
3: Okay, well, uh, the first thing I want to say is that I would never dispute that many of the goods claimed for social media are authentic. And I try to cite a few of them in the book. Um, I mean, I worked very hard uh, to, to help make the internet possible on a technical level in the 90s. And of course, I am still a believer that bringing people together is valuable and can create wonders. And I, I mean, I if I lost that Faith, I don't know what I'd do. I mean <laughs> I, I mean I of course so so I agree with that positivity. And my sense of what's going on now is that 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 positive layer does exist, but it's joined by an unnecessary and, and deeply unfortunate, even unsurvivable, other thing, this machinery in the background that takes advantage of it and ruins it. So in the example of Black Lives Matter, I thought that the Black Lives Matter movement was brilliant. I thought the framing of it was great. I thought it was uh, remarkably um, generous and open considering the intensity. It wasn't uh, uh, it was inviting. it was it was uh, positive. I mean, I thought it was an amazing thing. And I think that the general initial reaction to it was was positive for most people actually, and I think it was, uh, it's absolutely true that it was accelerated by social media. However, there's this other behind-the-scenes machine which is working, and so what that's doing is it's taking all of the posts and all of the activities from people who like Black Lives Matter and just as a matter, of course, algorithmically testing it out to see who else it might engage. And, of course, the way engagement is measured is with very rapid feedback, so the people who have the, the more impulsive instead of the more considered reactions tend to read more clearly to the feedback algorithms. And as it happens, the people who were irritated or find or disagree with it were the most engaged. And that always happens. And so these people who hated Black Lives Matter were not only identified by the the algorithms, but introduced to each other. And then their annoyance was reinforced and reinforced and reinforced, not out of any ideological bent on the part of a company like Facebook, but rather just through um, algorithmic The algorithmic seeking of engagement, and then they then they became this like red carpet rolled out for bad actors, which in this case were Putin's psychological warfare units, who suddenly had this population to target very clearly, as well as the original Black Lives Matter people, which which we'll get to in a second. And so it's this behind the scenes behavior modification manipulation scheme that's been glommed on to the good stuff that ruins it. And so what you see is a repeated pattern where there are very people who I find to be um, doing things that are very positive and attractive and worthwhile, but then their energies get inverted by this, this machine in the background into something that's the opposite and something that's very horrible and destructive of society. The biggest example was that social media propelled the Arab Spring to happen very quickly and remarkably smoothly by historical standards, but then it turned out to be even more powerful for ISIS and similar groups to create a horrible, hateful societal wave that has overwhelmed it. Um, and something similar to that happened with Black Lives Matter, where all of their efforts were turned into fuel by the machine in the background to to feel this resurgence of a a Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazi movement in the United States that hadn't really been coherent for many, many, for, for decades, you know, for generations. So the thing is, the positive part of social media, the part that people experience positively is very real and authentic. And I think it would continue to exist if the background machine, the this machine that's seeking to algorithmically figure out how to engage people, if that thing was just removed, the positivity would remain. And so it's really this background machine, which is the basis of what we call the advertising model, even though I think that's a misnomer. It's that thing that's the problem, not the surface experience of social media in general.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place.
2: here is that these social movements that emerge online, they create stronger counter reactions, both because of who they're fed to, um, also because of the the power of negative emotions online, um, because of the sort of algorithmic serving up of this content, sort of on and on and on down the line. That there is something within the machine where the good that arises on it always creates sort of the, the bad, right? In, in Marvel Comics, there's a character called the Sentry who, whenever the Sentry does something good, his inverse, the void, does something a hundred times <laughs> as bad. And you sort of have social media set up as a Sentry in the void. I, I would never tell you that social movements of all kinds, Arab Spring, Black Lives Matter, the civil rights movement, I mean, you name your movement, don't create backlashes. But are those backlashes more Powerful. I mean, so the the Arab Spring is one set of questions, and I think that I mean when you're when you're ending and reconstructing governments, right? That has a, so many contributors into it. I don't know how much that I buy that that is um, either primarily a social media phenomenon or that what ISIS or, or other kinds of radical movements have been able to do on social media is actually more powerful. I think that all of that is very very complex. But here, I I don't know, I. I struggle with, one, the idea that social media created Donald Trump. I think that is something we say is true that I don't actually believe is true. Donald Trump was put into office not by people who use Twitter but by people who watch Fox News. His voting base is overwhelmingly old and white, which is actually not what the demographics of something like Twitter look like. And Black Lives Matter, I, I do think that this sort of – the the efforts and movement and campaigning and concerns that are coming forward as the country diversifies as we had an African-American president as as Black Lives Matter comes up. Yeah, I I absolutely think that has a role in creating not just the alt-right, but the the intellectual dark web stuff. I think there's a lot of discomfort around um, that that manifests both in ways that are more and less toxic. But is that stuff stronger or is that just part of a dialectic that always exists whenever there are, are these kinds of moments in political history? And you can't get one without the other, mm. and it's not necessarily stronger. It's just—I don't know. I—I I, I wonder if the depression and, and the frustration and the dis- dispiritedness that you experience when you see these this sort of darkness emerge out of what you see as light, if it—if it's not blotting out too much of the light for you.
3: Mm. Well, you know, you've um, your question. Really cuts to this um, general problem that human beings are not well positioned to perceive reality perfectly. You know, <laughs> we uh, we struggle with epistemology all the time, and we struggle with this question of is this thing really a difference in kind or is it just a difference in degree? And would this thing have really mattered or not? And we can only experience reality once and only from a very limited perspective. So, I I think we have a duty to do our best, but also to stay humble and to recognize that our best is not perfect in our attempts to understand reality. So I I, I would not ever claim that there isn't complexity and ambiguity. Um, I would claim that I am doing my best to try to pick up on what matters, what can be actionable. Uh, and, and that's ultimately the only thing that can matter is, is those things that are actionable. So, um, as far as um, you, you brought up a lot of different examples here on the Trump example, there are a couple of things I'd say. First, um, I presume that you've met him and perhaps interviewed him at some time. Is that correct? It's actually I've not ever
2: I I may have met him I've not interviewed him at any length.
3: Okay, so I've never really had a conversation with him, but I've been in meetings with him and I've I've met him in passing a few times over an extended period. Are, are over you? Some can you tell me what
2: meetings you were in with him? How how your paths crossed?
3: Yeah, um, for example, there was an occasion where there was a. Um, a project in Manhattan uh, where there are multiple groups bidding to be able to build a building at a site. And I'd hooked up with some architects and I'd come up with this crazy high-tech idea for this sort of animated building that would appear to turn itself inside out twice a day. And I was there as part of a presentation where this group of investors and architects were trying to get the right to build something on this site. And Trump was there with an alternative proposal and neither of us got it. A third, a third group won that particular thing um so that's one example another example um is uh it's a strange one where somebody i knew um essentially dated him but i don't want to go into that more out of respect to the person um and then um there was another one that was just kind of like a fancy function party in new york and and these were all spaced out by some years so it was over a period of time so i can't claim to really know him at all and i i'm You know, I present my take on this with that caveat that I I might, I mean, I really don't have enough information. But my impression is that the earlier Trump of the, let's say, the 80s and 90s and early years of the century had some characteristics in common with the present day Trump, but also some differences. I viewed him as kind of a, a, a confidence man. Um uh, as a somebody who was comfortable in mob circles and so forth. I mean, I didn't I viewed him as somebody who was very flawed, but he struck me as somebody who was also basically kind of um, happy and enjoying himself. And and most importantly of all, he was somebody who was in on his own joke, somebody who knew he was playing a character and was kind of having fun playing that character and um, somebody who seemed kind of comfortable in the world. There's a different Trump, which I think has appeared since he became addicted to Twitter, in which he's taken on the snowflake personality traits, where there's an obvious apparent insecurity, a desperate need for affirmation, a kind of a a need to get into tiffs with people that's compulsive, and a need to always have somebody else to bully out of an apparent fear that he might be the one who'd otherwise be bullied. And I, I just, you know, I think maybe some of that was happening when he was running the TV show already I, I'm uh, of the latter one, but a lot of the stuff seems to me to be different and it seems to be uh, a sign of an addiction. So in that sense, social media made Trump, I mean, it made him as an individual into a different kind of individual. So that's the hypothesis I'd put forward. And so it made him worse, you know, I mean, he might not have been that great to begin with, but I think he might have been more like a Cuomo figure to begin with, but now he's turned into sort of a bizarre, you know, like a a snowflake Cuomo. I mean, I know this
2: this pulls us off of our our topics a little bit, but Uh it's interesting. Let me let me give you my counter-theory of this. Uh, Okay, sure. And and recognizing that we are both just sort of psychoanalyzing from afar and, and that may not be useful. But I feel like I have seen with a lot of people two traits that I recognize in him or think that I recognize in him. One is it as people get older, particularly if they are not surrounded by a lot of longtime friends and partners who can really call them on their shit, their personality traits have a tendency to curdle in on themselves. They become sort of strangely warped versions of themselves. Um, everything just becomes more and more intense. And I think a lot of the the – narcissism, grandiosity, I'll call it racial discomfort that he's always exhibited. It looks to me like that concentrated over time and that the thing that I think drove him, I think Donald Trump is a very authentic viewer of Fox News. I think – I mean in the media, you know, one of the ways I've had contact with Trump is that he would print out people's articles and then like scrawl on them in marker and send them <laughs> to you and be like, this is wrong. Or, this is I mean this happened all the time at the Post. And um, But, you know, when I look at people in a foxnews.com comment thread or kind of cranky conservatives who email me, I just recognize a lot of him um, and we know he's very deeply addicted to, to cable news. I actually think probably social media is part of it too. But the it really seems to me that he exists inside a cable news world. That is the feedback he cares about. I think he broadcasts things on Twitter. I don't think he absorbs all that much on Twitter. I don't. I'm not saying nothing, but I think that is not where his like real consumption happens. I think his real consumption happens on cable news. I think he's an older man who was, you know, kind of – Growing older in a way that was a little bit for all the people he knew. I think all the reporting around him suggests kind of social alienation. Doesn't look to me like Melania Trump and him have the the warmest, um, closest relationship. Uh, he is close with his children, uh, but he does not seem to have that many longtime friends who he sees all that often. I mean, all that stuff is very, very much what we know about him. And I think he's a guy who just watches a lot of cable news and really became that. Those parts of his personalities were really uh, supercharged by that. He ran this cable news campaign and to the extent Twitter is useful to him, I mainly think it's because it's the way he communicates with journalists and the way he drives cable news and other media forms to cover him. I mean, the, the place where I think my argument is the weakest is that he did run a Twitter campaign. It's just that its value wasn't on Twitter. Its value was that he just got every normal media organization all the not you know newspapers and cable news and nightly news to cover his tweets.
3: Mm. All right. So um There are a couple of things I feel I need to say. Uh, One is uh, when you say he doesn't take in much from Twitter, he only puts out, I would agree with you in terms of content, but in terms of addiction cues, he does. it's really important to him to get those addiction cues, which is people who are following him and people who tweet him and so forth. So uh, once again, if you're thinking content, uh, it's a very different story. All right, then um, I want to go back to something you said before. Wasn't it more Fox News that elected him than Twitter? And- I want to say a couple things about that. One is that um, the function of Twitter was not so much to bring out his vote as to suppress the vote against him. And this is something we know very specifically that the uh, the, the Russian intelligence warfare units created fake black people to put out cynical black material at, at just the right timed intervals and with just the right content as tested in order to make black voters just a little cynical, a little alienated to statistically repress their vote with uh, fake accounts like Blacktivist. And so the issue here is not so much that Twitter is the way to reach the old white people who vote for Trump, but rather it's the way to repress the vote of the people who might otherwise vote against him. So that that's a critical but very important distinction. And, and so in that function, I think... Um, as James Clapper said, it it, it begs you know it, it begs credulity to suggest that this very very tight election was enthroned by that voter suppression. And then as far as the content of Fox, this is a little interesting. Fox has been nutty for a while, but it's been getting gradually more and more rigidly nutty in my view. I used to go on it as a guest on various shows, and it was always a little nutty. But I think what's happened is that social media has provided an alternate reality backdrop that's allowed it to become more and more extreme without being curtailed by shame. You know, because there's this, there's this seeming reality that confirms it that wasn't there before. So I actually think that that social media has provided a kind of a cover for media to go extreme that didn't exist before in a free society with open media. So Um,
2: let me let me switch sides and argue from your side now, because I think there's an important (laughs) point. But then you'll behoove me to argue from
3: your side. (laughs) I know that it's a it's a great judo trick. (laughs) Okay,
2: you. one of the things you say in the book is that the media, right, newspapers, digital outlets, whatever, that that, that we become part of this machine too, that, that we adapt ourselves to it. Which I can tell you, as a journalist who has been through the rise of of blogs, the rise of search engine optimization, the rise of Twitter and Facebook, it is a hundred percent true. We do change what we are doing even if only in the packaging, right? Even if only in the way we headline and so on to, to adapt to these new formats and, and to get audience in them. And That's always been true, right? It's true long before social media. Um, but I do think it, it it changes the nature of our work a little bit. I thought one of the really insightful lines of your book, you wrote, you have to become crazy extreme if you want to say something that will survive even briefly in an unpredictable context. One of the things that is true for all of us now is that we are creating journalism um, that is meant to survive in unpredictable context. It is meant to be appealing if you've never heard of our publication but you click on it in a Google result or if you see it on Facebook or on Twitter or your friend sends it to you an iMessage or whatever it might be. And What that requires is much more clear and declarative and also urgent headlines. So, headlines, which, if you go back and look at newspaper headlines from 30 years ago, or you look at magazine headlines, like every magazine headline from 20 years ago is a pun. Every headline ever written about the legal, uh, like anything in the law, is just called raising the bar. They're yeah. all just called raising the bar. And you would have no way to know what the story is about. But the reason they could do that is that if you had bought that magazine or subscribed to that magazine, you already had so much context that they didn't need to say that much to get you to read the article. Now, maybe that was a mistake. I used to criticize that quite strongly. But but there is something to it. Whereas now we are we are shouting so loudly because we need you to hear us when you have no context about us at all. We need you to click on us even if you have no reason to do so at all. That I do think it's changed us in more ways than we even quite know how to – how to see in ourselves. And and I say that as somebody, by the way, who has been part of that change, who has, I think, in certain ways, pioneered certain headlines, right? Like in one chart headlines. And um, you know, at, at Vox, we make everybody do five to ten um hypothetical headlines for any piece, and then we pick the the you know, people vote on which one they like the most. And on one level, like, yeah, we want to get appealing headlines so people read our stories. A point is to get people to read our stories, but on the other hand. It does change you to be working in this way where you cannot rely on anybody's idea of who you are to to bring them across the bridge, that you, you have to, like, yell for someone who has no idea who you are at all, and that that may not bring out the best version of yourself.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a problem. I made a decision as this era started to not be on social media and... Uh, I've received pushback. I've, people have said, well, you know, you're not re- reaching as large an audience as you might. But I, I just refuse to turn into a purely quantitative communicator. I feel like uh, when I publish books or when I appear on your podcast, at least there's some context which allows me to have a qualitative relationship with whoever might be interested in my work it does allow you to be less crazy and uh i as i said at the start even if only a small part of our world can have that quality it's still essentially that we preserve that part to have perspective so uh i um but then i'm not trying to run a publication and i i know that uh, publications like vox or the poster in a in a difficult spot during this era and uh uh, I should point out, I urge people in the book to subscribe to sites <laughs> that do real journalism, you know, um, actually subscribe, get invested in it, get to know the people. It's it's um, it's the best way to know the world. You know, the, the other part of that that I wanted to focus on, and I
2: packed so much into my question that uh, I, I feel a bit bad, but the other thing that that quote made me think about was just the way less context means you have to communicate with more intensity, I think of how little my wife needs to say to get me to pay attention to what she's saying, right? Even if my wife is not saying something in a certain way, it might really, really set off all my alarms and and, and make me pay attention versus how much I would have to do or someone who I'm passing on the street and don't know, how aggressive their communication has to be to make me pay attention to it, right? Just, just what those different bars are. That difference—it's something that you sort of talk about your book in asshole or as sort of an, a, an asshole amplification system. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I thought about it a lot as a kind of intensification system. You don't necessarily need to be doing it as an asshole. You can do it in ways that are, you know, trying to pull you towards the plight of someone. Right? It, it can be done in a lot of ways, but it is a constant shouting that if you if you have no context to get. For somebody to get you to pay attention to them, they really need to yell. And it just does create this constant yelling in a way where every individual yeller is doing something completely justified because they have to yell in the system. But I don't know that it's good for us to constantly all be being yelled at all the time.
3: Well, you know, I want to point out something, and I don't think I got around to saying this in the book, but I probably should have, which is if you have a society based on everybody yelling at everybody else, then obviously... No particular instance of yelling stands out anymore because everybody's yelling. So the people who can yell the most are the people who structurally are positioned to yell the most. So what it does is it reinforces some sort of um, hierarchy of yellers that becomes persistent. So, for instance, if you're the president, you can yell more or maybe a few celebrities, but not even It actually creates this very narrow and uh, somewhat arbitrary, I would say, bureaucracy of, of top yellers. That has nothing to do with real value in a conversation and and this is a way that the you know this ideal that if everybody can speak openly and there are no barriers, then we should have a broader conversation with more diversity and you know it doesn 't work at all. What it turns into is this very rigid little pyramid peak pyramidian <laughs> of just a few yellers who end up dominating the conversation who don 't even necessarily know what they're talking about at all uh so it, it that idea of total openness turns out to backfire terribly.
2: You have a couple interesting points about different ideas that backfire, ideas that sound like one thing and and, and prove to be another. And I I think it might have been in your New York Magazine interview. You said that one of the patterns we see that makes the world go wrong is when somebody acts as if they aren't powerful, when they actually are powerful. If you're still reacting against whatever you used to struggle for but actually you're in control – then you end up creating great damage in the world. I'd love to hear you expand on that a bit.
3: Yeah, um, I think that that's actually one of the ways that people go bad is when they're still acting defensively when in, where uh, they no longer need to. I'll tell you an example that came up for me actually early on was uh, Israel. Israel. Which is uh, the ultimate defensive country that sometimes that still acts defensively in situations where it really doesn't need to, and it's 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 really counterproductive. And and uh, uh, I'm the child of a Holocaust uh, victim, and all that, and so I, I have great sympathies for Israel's sense of defensiveness, and yet I think it's also time to outgrow it. You know, <laughs> and, and uh, but I think something similar has happened in the United States, where there were times, for instance, when we uh, we bombed the hell out of Southeast Asia and filled it with landmines out of a sense that we were under tremendous threat from someplace like Laos or Cambodia, which was ridiculous. In a context like social media, where, where there's nothing but politics and everybody's yelling and you're vulnerable to being pounced on all the time, there is this kind of sense that whenever you do get your moment of power, you're acting in a way that's as if you were about to be Enveloped or or destroyed. It's it. There is this kind of dysfunction that becomes universal. Um, I think there's yeah. something.
2: I think there's something important there because I really do notice this total this sense of omnivulnerability that people carry with them on social media. Where on the one hand they they, they act as if getting criticized for something they said, which I've been on social media a long time and. I've had a lot of that. Um, They act as if getting criticized for something they said. It's like the worst thing that can happen to a human being. Um, That is such an unfair use of power against them. And then they don't, they don't see their own power, right? I mean, you will have very, very senior journalists who do, who just seem to see themselves as victims of, of, of social media, and when they're on social media, Donald Trump always feels like there's a witch hunt against him, and all these people are coming for him all the time, even though he's now mm-hmm. the president. And I do, I think it goes back to the pack dynamics you talk about. One thing that that anthropologists and and evolutionary psychologists talk about is that human beings are are built. With an uh, a kind of intuitive understanding of smaller communities, right? You've got a couple hundred people in your community, you know, 150, and we sort of benchmark off of those dynamics. And so when at any moment, a thousand people can start giving you shit, right? A thousand people can, who you don't know can all be telling you you're a terrible person. This will happen to me occasionally, and I always am trying to ask myself— why am I upset by it, right? Why why do I care that I'm getting these emails or, you know, if I notice it getting these tweets because I, I try to stay off of my own mentions? Um, why do I care? And I I think the answer always is that we're built to care. And so it's almost like no matter how big you are, you haven't outgrown your brain's understanding that it's bad for the community to be angry at you. Mm-hmm, sure. And social media, by by always like thrusting you into different communities that have no context for you and really aren't your own but somehow now I have access to you. I feel like it hijacks a part of people, makes everybody feel, feel vulnerable. Cause in that way, they always are vulnerable.
3: Well, you know, the way, the way you become a um, autocrat or a dictator is you get everybody into pack mode and you get them all afraid that they'll end up at the disadvantaged slot, that they'll be the one who's humiliated and, The one who the pack turns on, and then everybody has to get in line. And uh, this is the psychology that has created um, all the kings and autocrats, you know, (laughs) through time. And uh, and this gets back to the epistemological problem: is it really different with social media? Well, yeah, a little different. The dynamics is different, but the 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 psychology inside inside the brain, of course, is similar to what it's always been. and it's a terribly sad process. Uh, I was just, you know, we we're recording this just after uh, Justice Kennedy has announced his retirement. And I note that his his last decisions seemed like they were just kind of sagging in the direction of some sort of perceived social consensus, which is not characteristic of him. And I, I think that that might have been a sign of this power of uh, of the, you know the the PACs. Reality creation dynamic, you know, and it's it's uh it's something that democracy is just in- incompatible with. We have to somehow get people back to being lone wolves if we if we have any hope for survival of the country, or I think even our species. Given the problems we face, it's it's a uh, it's really essential.
2: If you were building or you were redesigning a social network that would call forth our better selves, uh, don't want to say best selves, but mm-hmm. but but not our asshole selves, but our our better selves. What do you think would be the parameters of that? What 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 rules would you set, such that it would urge us to be a better version, not a worse one?
3: Yeah, well, you know, here we have to be empirical. So I'm very happy to share my ideas, but I want to really emphasize that the only the only result that should matter is a test in reality. So um, I anything I say that's speculative, I'm I'm ready to discover it's wrong, of course, but. Uh, It seems to me that all evidence points to the idea that if people have a real stake in what they're doing, they become more like lone wolves instead of pack wolves. So uh, when people uh, have—there's a way that capitalism can actually have a civilizing effect— if it's done in such a way that each person really can act as an individual and doesn't get subsumed into some sort of um, company store, monopoly or monopsony trap, you know, if there's there's a way, (laughs) this gets into a whole complicated thing, you need to have some layers that are sort of socialistic to give people enough power to be able to act as individuals in a market. So you can't, you can't be purely libertarian and get a market, but that's a whole other interview for another time but let's but let's say you have the conditions where people can act as individuals where they can, where each person can be both a producer and a consumer and this should be possible on the internet it should be possible for people to say i am going to earn some money from what i'm doing today on the internet or i'm going to pay somebody else for what i want and i think when that happens the quality of stuff gets better and there's less of this uh, asshole effect Um, I already mentioned LinkedIn as one example, but I'd like to mention another example, which might seem very different at first, which is Netflix. There was a time, around the time when uh, Google and Facebook were being founded, when uh, a lot of folks in Silicon Valley thought that in the future there would be no longer any... uh, uh, formal paid people making television or movies instead everything would be created along the model of the wikipedia and there would just be armies of volunteers who would self-organize and they would connect through some sort of platform that would make somebody rich and they'd all work for free and they'd create the very best movies for everybody because there'd be some sort of group wisdom consensus process but then at the same time uh companies like Netflix said, well, there's this other way to use the internet, which is to have a direct billing relationship with people and charge and, um, you know, maybe people will just pay us if we give them an experience that's that's what they want. And people thought, oh, this could never work because you can get pirated video for free and YouTube is free. Why would anybody ever pay Netflix? But it turns out enough people paid Netflix that Netflix was able to start producing stuff that people wanted. And then we have this thing that we call Peak TV. Um, and I think key to that is that Netflix is not a monopoly. There's actually a bunch of people doing the same thing, um, Amazon Prime and Hulu and HBO and so forth, who are each paid in their own ways, who compete with each other. And suddenly we have this thing called Peak TV. And to me, that's a great example of how markets can work and can overcome this sort of race to the bottom that happens otherwise. Um, And so I I imagine something like that with uh, social media and search, where we start to have something like peak social media in the future. And, and uh, I can tell you what that would look like because we needed it a lot in the last few years. My, my wife's been battling cancer for the last few years and she's got a great prognosis now. uh, So it's, she's out of danger. But during that time, we would go online to try to get information and, there were a few good things, there are a few good places where you can meet other cancer patients and stuff, but there's this overwhelming mountain of manipulative garbage and falsity and crazy paranoid stuff. And it's so hard to dig through that it's almost impossible to get anything useful. And I I feel like there could be a peak social media where you have the good stuff, the real people without the fake people, and the real information without the manipulative information. And, And the way to get there is just to completely cut out this background manipulation machine that exists like a tumor turning everything to shit online. And the way you do that is by getting a company like Google or Facebook to operate on a business plan that's a little more like uh, uh, Netflix, you know, just like actually pay them and then get better quality stuff from them. It just seems like it's such a no brainer. It's so obvious. And just as people said, oh, Netflix is impossible because you can get video for free online. It'll never happen. But it did happen. There's no reason to think that this other thing couldn't happen. And I think if people have a chance to be paid by providing good stuff online in a marketplace, I think they'll start to have an interest in not being crazy assholes. I think they'll instead, you know, I mean, it's, just a, it's a different motivational structure.
2: I've been trying to think about this a little bit, and how much payment uh, changes everything. I, I will say that that Netflix and Peak TV, um, at the very peak of Peak TV, is Vox's new show on Netflix.
3: Explained.
2: <laughs> if, if I didn't take this moment to tell everybody to go watch Explained on Netflix, I'd be I'd be doing myself a terrible disservice and all of you a terrible disservice.
3: And 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 may I point out something? Yes, you were able there. To in a funny and appropriate way promote your Vox show on Netflix without being an asshole, I thank you for that, and I also thank Adam Smith.
2: Well, we'll see. We'll we'll see if people think I was an asshole about it. But um, <laughs> but but putting, putting that putting that down now that you've all gone and, and checked out and explained on Netflix again, um, I do wonder about the ways in which paying for things does or doesn't act as a buttress against forms of extremism because something I've I've seen um, is that models that are subscription-oriented, models that are payment-oriented, obviously they, they, they can be models that, that, that move towards high quality or they can be models that move towards a gentleness and they can also be models that move towards intensity. So take political fundraising, right? One thing you might say is that you know a, a way you want to structure a political system is that you – People should have a little bit of a stake in the game. They, they, should, they should put some money behind what they think. Um, small donor fundraising, that's where it's all going to go. And sometimes it does, right? There are – one way to get a lot of small donor fundraising is to be really inspirational. But another way to get a lot of small donor fundraising is to be really extreme. I don't have, I don't know what the numbers are nowadays, but I remember a couple of years ago, the top small donor fundraisers in the US House of Representatives were Michelle Bachman, Alan West, Alan Grayson. You know, they 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 were candidates who were on the extremes of their, their sides, but not just that, they were the least civil of the, the crew, right? They 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 were people who would get into big fights, into big controversies, and they would fundraise off of those controversies. I don't want to compare him to this exactly, but I think if you look at people who are doing a lot of crowdfunding for their own work right now, I think you see people who sometimes are folks who I think are great and sometimes are folks who are uh, very intense and combative and what they end up getting is a very strong niche audience who is willing to pay because paying is expressing something about their identity. So so that's sometimes my concern about the the idea that adding payment in will, will, will change it, that on the one hand, yeah, if you're, if you're putting some actual money behind what you're doing, you need to like it more. And so that might mean you're buying something of better quality, but it also might mean you're buying something that appeals to you more intensely. And as we've discussed already a little bit here, I'm not sure that the connection between things that people feel intensely and connect to intensely and those things always being um, the best product or the best for civil society is always right there. I, I think in both, in both contexts – a lot of things are a little bit more muted, Hmm. end up really suffering.
3: Okay, so in your example, let's remember why money matters in politics. The money is spent on advertising, and the advertising is used to create waves of doubt or paranoia or whatever. Um, So fundamentally, the problem is the advertising Because that's the only thing you can spend the money on unless you actually go around bribing voters.
2: Well, you could spend it on – well, let me be fair to people in politics. I don't like money in politics, so let me – I don't want to take the side of it, but – People spend it on field organizing. They spend it on on signs that go in people's yards. They spend it on good staff. It's not just
3: on advertising. Well, in the in the case of the extremist candidates you're talking about, that's kind of what it goes into. And and actually, in the case of some, it just seems to go into their pockets lately, without mentioning anybody in the White House. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but I I, I guess. Um, if I were running the world, I would try to build as much of a barrier between money and politics in the United States as I possibly could. I would have publicly funded elections that were um, regulated according to very consistent principles. And I'd make it a little boring and bureaucratic uh, if need be. And and the reason for that is that if you're in a so- society where... Um, See, this is the tricky thing. In a market society, you're going to have a distribution of people with different outcomes um, if people are free. um, And so you are going to have some people who do a lot better than other people. That's... um, just a side effect and and the people who are on the extreme good side then have an advantage in bending politics to their way. And the very typical pattern we see, I mean, it's not the exclusive pattern, but a typical pattern is there's somebody with a lot of money who says, well, look, what I can do is I'll find some way of funding these crazy extreme people so long as they will then support my interests. So I don't have to say it's me. And then behind the scenes, you'll see, um, ways of backing these people. And, um, so there has to be some kind of a bridge between democracy and um, capitalism, where the where the uh, outcomes of capitalism don't too ha- don't have direct <laughs> influence on the outcomes of democracy, which is more or less what I think's gone wrong here, um, and social media has been part of the mechanism by which it's gone wrong lately. Um, so, but this gets to a whole other area that's outside of the social media question. But uh, yeah, personally, I, I'd, I'd prefer to see much more of a of a, a block between um, between money and politics in the U.S. But just given what's been happening, I think that'll have to be for our grandchildren to work out. It's gonna, we're going to have the present system for a long time. I wish we wouldn't though.
2: One of the things that I've heard people talk about is that one of the issues with a lot of interaction online is that the internet doesn't have a good mechanism for validating identity. And Now, some places do, um, Facebook, for instance, more or less does, although there are a lot of bot accounts on Facebook, too. But this is certainly one of the things you hear people talk about when they get excited about blockchain, that be beyond just Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, that blockchain can be a way of validating identity. Um, I'm curious if you have a, a view on blockchain. Do you see that as a transformative technology or do you see that as something something less?
3: Mm. Well, before I get to blockchain, let me just say something about identity online, which is, um, I I think the core problem here is the manipulation machine in the background. If there weren't business plans that incentivized absolutely everybody to be trying to screw everybody else through manipulation and trickery, then the fact that somebody might want to have multiple identities or fake ones wouldn't be so dangerous as it is because there wouldn't be any incentivization to create giant numbers of fake people. Right now, we have giant numbers of fake people who provide the reviews and the illusion that there are a lot of people to date on a dating service, and all, all you know, and that somebody's a celebrity when they might not really have been before, and all that. And all of this fakeness does really undermine society. But if the incentives for massive fakeness were going on, then the occasional individual fakeness might not be so bad. And I don't want to go around telling a teenager, "Oh, don't you dare have a fake Instagram account or something." I, I think people need to be able to experiment with identity, and it's really not. It's not variable identity that's the problem. It's the manipulation machine in the background, which has, you know, created these giant empires. That's the problem. So we have to keep our eye on the ball here. But then um, as far as uh, blockchain, um, yeah, it's a fetish of the moment. And it's impossible for me to give a talk without somebody asking about blockchain. And... um, I guess I got to say a couple things about it that are somewhat cynical. One is that if you hope to use some kind of algorithmic system to replace actual trust in a society, you will fail. The core code that runs Bitcoin is pretty well designed. I think it's kind of hard. It's hard to break. I don't think it's ever been broken by anybody. And yet we've still had we've had Bitcoin um, exchanges that have turned out to be fraudulent and have collapsed. We've had Bitcoin thefts. We've had lost Bitcoins. We've had cryptocurrency uh, manipulations and uh, market misuses of all kinds. And the thing is, if you have a society where you say, we're going to have this absolute security for some kind of core piece because it's assured by some kind of computer system, um, but then we'll fall off a cliff after that, and then it'll just be this totally open whatever at the edge of that pure security. Well, then, of course, the part where you f- fall off the cliff at the edge is the thing that's going to break. Um Another example is when the State Department created this sh- uh, secure computer system to share their stuff, then just a few people decided to share it with WikiLeaks. or you know, th- There are a million examples like that. As soon as you think you have this perfect secure thing, and that's replacing real trust among the people who are using it, there'll be some j- catastrophic failure at the edge of that secure system. So I'm concerned that people are, are trying to turn to blockchain because they're finding the idea of people getting along to be just so impossible and implausible lately. It just seems like the human world is turning on itself. And so they're hoping for this techno save. I just don't think that'll work. I think we actually have to learn to trust each other and get along. And then we can use things like blockchain in the way that you, like you put a a lock on your front door and any, any computer science student, worth anything knows how to pick your lock. I mean, it's not that it's hard to get through your front door, but it's a little reminder that says, this is the private space and you have to actively do something. You just can't accidentally stumble into my private space. And in the same way, you can use things like blockchain as reminders or sort of ritualizations of a social contract, but to rely on them instead of a social contract, you will screw yourself. And and I it might take a number of those catastrophes for people to learn that lesson, because right now they're so in love with the idea of having technology connect people so that people don't have to really get along that, you know, people are just living in this fantasy, but it doesn't work that way.
2: Is there anywhere you go online or you go digitally or any technologies you're engaged in right now that you feel are a place of hope, that you feel are a place where you, you, you enjoy them? Put it, putting aside sort of the Netflix and stuff, I'm, I'm talking more more participatory Places or or just places of beauty. I'm just curious what you what you enjoy in the digital space right now.
3: Well, you know, after all these years, I still love virtual reality. I really do, and I still love things designers come up with. Sometimes just crazy, goofy things. Like the other day, I was inside a fresh scan of some of uh, some tombs of. Uh, ancient Egypt and just being able to walk around in these things and you can see things within the scanned version that you can't see in real life because you have perfect lighting and much more detail and all, and you can fly right up to a detail in a ceiling. And it, it made me cry. I mean, it's just so, it just like opens up this world and this connection that wasn't there before. And uh, they're, There's a whole world of designers in VR now coming up with stuff that's beautiful, and and so I still love it. I mean, I I love this stuff, and I I actually still love Silicon Valley. I love my world. I was working this morning on uh, a—it's a a complicated thing, but it's a system that would use— cloud software and drones to try to do much more rapid assessment of natural disasters to coordinate emergency responses. And that kind of stuff saves lives. It really matters to me. Um, my wife's major cancer operation was performed by somebody who trained in a simulator that was a descendant of the very first surgical simulator that I worked on with a guy at Stanford and was trained by somebody who was trained by somebody by my old uh, my old collaborator, Joe Rosen. And and. I don't know. This stuff comes around. It, it, technology really does make life better, and it can be beautiful. And it's a. I I still am a true believer, and I still get great joy from it.
2: So I think that's a a good place to bring us to a close. Now, when I I did this interview with the when I did this interview with you the first time, I asked my normal ending question, which is for three book recommendations. Which after some prodding, I eventually got. Um, but but knowing you a little bit better now, I want to do something different, which is. Can you recommend three musical pieces for people to listen to? Oh. Three things you think are are beautiful or interesting oh. that, that people should probably haven't heard and should.
3: Oh. Oh, that's a very nice question. And and once again, I'm just overwhelmed 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 with things I feel like I should talk about. um, um Well, um I feel like in honor of the Supreme Court supporting the Muslim ban, I should choose something from the Arabic or Muslim world. And there's so many things there I could choose. You could listen listen to some of the wonderful old Oud recordings of uh, Farid al-Atrash, the, 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 this wonderful—and um, my pronunciation was horrible, so please— uh, fix it <laughs> it's horrible but uh that that's one one place to go or uh for persian music since we've banned persians uh susan Dehim, a wonderful persian singer living in los angeles now should be listened to she's stunning uh, she's a one of the best vocalists of i don't know many generations do you know how do you know how to spell uh, her name yeah, S U S S A N A N, like Susan with a double S, and then um, Dehim is D-E-Y-H-I-M. I'm trying to think of living musicians who deserve more attention because um, there's. Uh, I'd like to help people's careers. Oh, God, you put me on the spot here. Um, listen to anything by uh, the Brooklyn Knights, a chamber orchestra. I've, I've been doing some things with them lately. It's knights like medieval knights. They, they're doing wonderful work of combining musical traditions from all over with western western stuff in a wonderful way and in a very brooklyn way see now there's a danger i'm just going to promote my friends that's um, fine <laughs> g- g- give me one more you've already given me three i think you've got one more um the percussionist the drummer will calhoun is somebody i play with a lot and he he was the drummer in living color the black heavy metal band but he also has now a solo career as a jazz artist on blue note and stuff and he's doing something that i think is really important which is he's the most musical electronic percussionist he's he's the person who's figured out how to get the most just beauty and authenticity out of uh high-tech percussion and i think that's a really important thing to do that, that, that's
2: a great finding the people who's finding the way to get beauty out of the high tech is, I think, actually a great, great final note and metaphor. Jaron Lanier, you're always such a pleasure to talk to. Thank you so much.
3: Oh, I'm so grateful. And I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and let's hope our country gets better soon. Please, <laughs> please, please. <laughs> Thank you to
2: Jaron for being on the podcast again. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger The Ezra Klein Show, Fox Media, podcast production, and we'll be back... When will we be back? We'll be back next week.
1: More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals,